Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to the Universe Next Door. I hope you are doing well. Uh, I am Nick Shalna, and I will be your host today. And I just wanted to remind you to go back and check out the last few episodes of this series uh, on gospel apologetics. They will blow you away. And in fact, uh, we're going to continue Isaiah 53 today, which is one of the most important passages, not just uh, in the Old Testament, but in the Bible in general, because it is one of the most clear pictures of the gospel uh, and what the Messiah would come to do and what he did do uh, when he came. So be sure to check out those episodes, especially the last one where we t- where we started Isaiah 53, uh, as we will continue today. And we're also going to start by uh, just reading the last couple verses of Isaiah 52, because it's very important um, to view those as going into Isaiah 53, because they are part uh, of the prophecy. So if you have your Bibles, uh, I'm going to start at Isaiah 52, verses 13 Uh, to the end of the chapter, so 13 through 15. And then we'll pick up about halfway through Isaiah 53, uh, right around where we left off last week. But if you do have your Bibles, otherwise, if you're driving, just listen. But uh, Isaiah 52, 13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance Uh, in his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations, or some translations will also, you'll probably see on the bottom of your Bible, uh, it'll say startle. So either sprinkle or startle. So he shall sprinkle many nations, which would obviously uh, sort of allude to the sprinkling on the mercy seat, offering a sacrifice. Or uh, he shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, uh, them they see, and that which they have not yet heard, they understand. So this sort of leads into uh, the prophecy of Isaiah 53, especially when you look at this uh, verse 14, where, where it says, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And this, of course, directly just alludes to the flogging of Christ, and we sort of see a little picture of this in Isaiah 53 too, uh, that he would have no beauty that we should desire him. And in, in verse two, uh, that he was despised and rejected by men as one from whom men hide their faces, uh, that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. You know, so this alludes to the next chapter as well. But this is just a clear picture of the flogging of Jesus Christ before and when he was crucified. That his appearance was so marred. Uh, that he was beyond human semblance. And I would just note really quick, if you have not read this book, uh, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, it's been out for a while. It's a very popular book in the area of apologetics. But there is a section where he goes through the details of the flogging, the the 
uh, punishment that Christ took for us, and then he goes into detail in the crucifixion. He's interviewing, actually, uh, a medical doctor, and it really is just an incredible chapter. I read it to my students around uh, the Passion Week right before Easter on Good Friday, if I get the opportunity, and, and they were just blown away by it. They listened to every word of it because he goes into such great detail about what Christ took for us uh, before he even went to the cross, just the punishment he endured, and then, of course, he was hanged on a cross and murdered. But this is such a clear picture uh, of what Christ took for us and the beating and the punishment and the torture that he took. And, and if you read this description, you won't believe it. I mean, it will make you, it'll make you feel weak. It'll make you want to pass out. It's so detailed. Um, so Isaiah 52 goes into this chapter where we pick up, and of course we, we began last week. So let's pick up around, uh, let's pick up at verse 5, where the author comes in, Isaiah, and says, But he was wounded for our transgressions, or some will say he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes, or with his wounds, we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So let's pause for a second. Just in these two verses, uh, verse 5 and 6, we see a number of times uh, substitutionary atonement. That this Messiah, the prophecy of this Messiah uh, who would come, was going to be the substitutionary atonement for mankind, for those who believe. If you look closely, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. So he would stand in the place for our sin, what we have done wrong, for the way we have transgressed. He was pierced for our transgressions. Uh, in that term, in that, in that word pierce is very specific because obviously Jesus Christ was pierced hanging on the cross. He had nails through his wrists or hands and through his feet. Uh, and of course, he was pierced with a spear by the Roman soldier when blood and water had come out. So he was pierced. And keeping in mind that this account was written hundreds of years, uh, not only before the crucifixion of Christ, but hundreds of years before Roman crucifixion was even in place. And of course, we see this word used in Zechariah. We, we see it used in Psalm 22, referring to the coming of the Messiah. So this is, this is a common theme, that the Messiah would be pierced. Well, he was pierced for you and me on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We see that substitutionary atonement again. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. We are healed by what he took. Uh, all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned uh, everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that's that picture of the substitution that Christ took our place on the cross. He took our place for the sin we had committed, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity that we had committed, the sin and the sinfulness that we are responsible for. We appear blameless, faultless, and holy uh, before God because of what Christ did on the cross, because he took our sin for us. And we also see this is a, a wonderful picture of Romans 3 and verse 6 here. Uh, where it talks about how everybody has turned from God, everybody has become worthless, everybody uh, or nobody does good, no one is righteous, not one. So we see that reiterated by Paul in the New Testament in Romans 3, that nobody is good, nobody does what is right, everybody has turned away from God. 
Uh, and actually, that's the whole idea of repentance. Re to repent means to turn to God, to turn back to Christ. And of course, we have to turn because we're turned away already, naturally. We are born with iniquity. We are born with original sin. And so we're already turned away from God. The repentance is to turn back to him. So all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, every single human being on the earth has turned to his or her own way. We have all uh, tried to make a way for ourselves. We have all turned away from God. Now, if we pick up at verse, uh, verse uh, well, we'll continue verse 6, go into verse 7 and 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, of course, this again is a picture of Jesus Christ being led to the cross. Uh, we know that he is the Lamb of God. He is the one who is perfectly pure, who is perfectly good, and was still punished for the sin that we had committed. Uh, this is a clear prophecy of Jesus being led to the cross, oppressed. He was oppressed. It was completely unjust what had happened to him. Uh, and in fact, there was no good reason to arrest him. So he was unjustly arrested. He was afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. In other words, he did not complain. He did not say, how dare you, and then oppose them. He did not call down an army of angels, as we know, of course, he could have done, according to the scriptures, to, to take everybody out. He didn't do that. He didn't open his mouth, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb, that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its sharers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was perfectly submissive to the will of God. He did not open his mouth. He did not try to run away. He did not try to oppose what was happening because he knew since the age of at least the age of 12 we see in Scripture, he knew his whole life what he was called to do. He knew exactly what the will of God was for him to follow. And in fact, in the garden, we see that clearly. He said, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, the cup containing the wrath of God. If there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. He knew the will of God and he was led to be slaughtered and he was silent because he was submissive to God's will. Even though he was unjustly arrested, he was unjustly convicted, and he was unjustly murdered, and in fact, a murderer was released in his place. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And there's that substitutionary atonement again. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. And you see verses here like stricken. You see another verse uh, crushed we'll get into in a moment. You see uh, smitten. That was back in uh, verses 4 through 6. We see he was smitten. He was crushed. Well, these are words uh, that, that the Jewish people would not have identified with God. Uh, this, this chapter, of course, clearly says that the Messiah would be God. And we'll see more of that in a moment. We know it would have to be God because so far we already see that this figure, the Messiah, is going to have to be capable of paying for our sin, of being the substitute for the payment of our sin that we deserve uh, to make because the punishment of sin is death. So this, this substitute for us was going to come in place of our sin. It couldn't have just been a prophet. 
you know, never does Isaiah say, I'm going to pay for your sin. Never does I, Ezekiel uh, or any of the other prophets, n- none of them say, I'm going to pay for your sin. Because the one who pays for your sin would have to be perfect. He would have to be human and he would have to be God, as we're going to see in a moment. Uh, and in fact, uh, a rabbi named Raphael Levi, he was a rabbi several hundred years ago, he had admitted that before the time of Christ, they would read Isaiah 53 as part of their synagogue readings. And they saw it and viewed it as a prophecy of the Messiah, a messianic prophecy. Uh, and once Christ came and fulfilled these things, there were all sorts of arguments about it. And so they ended up taking the last half or so of Isaiah 52 and the entirety of Isaiah 53 out of the readings at synagogue. And that's why when you listen to uh, synagogue readings today, they'll skip. Once they get to Isaiah 52, they'll stop halfway through and then they'll pick back up at Isaiah 54 because it was so clear and it caused arguments among people because Jesus had come and fulfilled these things. But he also claimed to be God, the one and only true God which of course was the reason he was arrested uh, unjustly and the reason that he was tortured and the reason that he was murdered. Uh, and in fact, these, these verses, these words, as we said, smitten and crushed and, and afflicted, these words describe somebody who would, be, uh, who would be hung on a cross, who would be hanged, who would be tortured. And of course, in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 21, it said that a, a man who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. So you could imagine, and especially in the first century or so, I'm sure this, this, uh, this question came up left and right. Well, Scripture says that someone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God, but Jesus Christ hanged on a tree. He was on a cross. Well, what do we do with that? Which, of course, the, Paul, Apost- the Apostle Paul answered uh, in Galatians, Yeah, cursed is he who hanged on a tree, but Christ became a curse for us. Christ became sin for us so that he could be the substitutionary atonement for us so that he could die, live and die in our place and take what we deserved uh, for the punishment of sin. So he was oppressed and by judgment he was taken away. Uh, Nobody considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Now he goes on and he says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, there are a couple things, just each one of these little sections, these passages are just filled with prophecy. Uh, But there are a couple things here. Number one, you'll notice that the prophet Isaiah, as he gives this prophecy, he's looking back at the cross. You know, he's looking back, describing what Christ had done. I mean, for example, we see, for he grew up before him like a young plant. He was despised. Surely he has borne our griefs. He was wounded or pierced for our transgressions. Um, We see that that past tense all over this chapter. He was oppressed. He was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living. And now we see that they made his grave with the wicked. So we see he's looking back prophetically at this event of the cross, at the coming of the Messiah and his his, uh, crucifixion, death, and we'll see in a second, resurrection. So they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. So, of course, they made his grave with the wicked. Well, he had, Jesus Christ had two thieves on either side of them. And we know at least one of them was saved, as Jesus said, uh, you will be with me today, you will be with me in paradise. But 
the point in this passage is that he had criminals on either side of him. They were wicked on either side of him. He was, he was crucified and he was to be buried with the wicked. But if you remember, there was one man, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, who was the rich man described in this passage. Because Joseph of Arimathea and the apostle, I'm sorry, not the apostle John, uh, according to the apostle John, not only Joseph of Arimathea, uh, but Nicodemus had also come to take Jesus down from the cross. And he had anointed him uh, before they were to bury him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And what's interesting is they have, they have discovered just a handful of these style tombs that Jesus was buried in. The, the tomb with the rolling rock that would go down and close the door, it would be at a slant so that you couldn't remove the rock. Obviously, a grave is not designed to be opened. So there are only a handful of these graves that were discovered. And all of them, interestingly enough, either belonged to members of the Jewish Sanhedrin or wealthy Jewish people in general. So this fits historically, it fits exactly what we see uh, in the uh, Passion narrative after Jesus was buried, and it also fits exactly what is in Isaiah 53. He was buried with, uh, by a rich man, by Joseph of Arimathea. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. And this speaks to the perfection uh, of Jesus Christ, that he was completely worthy to be the atonement for our sin. He was completely worthy to be the Messiah, to come and pay for our sin, to come and pay for the sins of the world, that anyone can put their faith in him and be saved by faith alone. Because of what he did, it was entirely on his shoulders. It was entirely him alone who paid for the sin that we uh, were meant to pay for. So we pick up at verse 10, and in my opinion, I think this is one of the most intense passages uh, in all of Scripture. But verse 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So it was the will of the Lord, just like we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus Christ is holding, as we just referenced, the cup of God's wrath and says, if there's any other way, take this from me, but not my will, your will be done. Because it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to put him to grief. And his soul would make an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord, that will that we just saw, shall prosper in his hand. Now, there's something really interesting uh, about this passage that I, I would like to point out. And it is that a lot of times people mix up what exactly the nature of Jesus Christ is. Uh, he is not half God, half man. He is not mostly God, a little bit man. He is fully or truly God and fully and truly man. Uh, some of you, maybe even your, your kids or grandkids, uh, may have seen the movie Moana. It's a popular Disney movie. But in the movie Moana, there's, uh, there's a main character. I don't remember his name, but he's what's called a demigod. And what a demigod is, uh, lowercase g, what a demigod is, is it is half god, half man. One of the Greek gods, not the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, but he would be half god and half man. That is not what Jesus Christ is. That is not the nature of Christ. Remember, the nature of Christ is fully and truly God and fully and truly man. 
And this has been challenged a number of times throughout uh, church history. And in fact, that's one of the reasons you see a lot of those famous councils and creeds that were written to combat these heresies. Well, there was an early heresy uh, by a man named Apollinarius. And what Apollinarius had taught was that Jesus was uh, man, but his soul was replaced by divinity. So he was a man, but he didn't have a human soul. His human soul was replaced by his divinity, his deity, by God. Well, this tells us that that is not true. Because it tells us several times at the end of this chapter that the Messiah would have a soul. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be see and be satisfied. And at the end of the chapter, uh, we see the word soul one more time. But this is just confirmation that Jesus had a soul. He was truly God, but he was also truly and fully man, just like you and I. He had a human soul. And it says here that when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Well, this is a picture of the resurrection. Because if God has crushed this Messiah, if, if God has put this Messiah to grief and done away with him, if he has pierced him, if he was crushed him, has crushed him, if he has wounded him, if he is dead, well, how in the world would he see his offspring? How in the world would he prolong his days by dying? Well, of course, this is a reference to the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we know is affirmed in the New Testament and is affirmed by history. That he would see his offspring even after he died. He would raise again triumphantly and he would prolong his days and accomplish the will of the Lord. So this is a clear picture of the resurrection. Now, picking up at verse 11 through the end, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. So he should reconcile many with God. Uh, And then it goes on and said, And he shall bear their iniquities. There's a substitutionary atonement again. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul, there's that word again, to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. So throughout this chapter, we see exactly what we see in the New Testament. Exactly what Jesus predicted, exactly what happened, and what happened after the crucifixion and death and resurrection. We see that Jesus would be rejected, he would be hated. In fact, he was killed. He was murdered unjustly because they hated him for claiming to be the one true God, for making the statement, I am, encompassing all of who God is. He told his apostles that the Son of Man would have to suffer many things. He told them that he would be murdered, he would be crucified, he would be killed. And of course, they didn't understand until they saw it happen and saw him raised from the dead. Some of them even doubted then. But he made this so clear to them what exactly would happen to the Messiah. So the Messiah could not have just been uh, simply a man. The Messiah was fully man, truly man, and truly God. He could not simply have just been a prophet. Because a prophet can't pay for anybody's sins. A prophet can warn others of their sin. A prophet can speak as the mouthpiece for God uh, and literally speak forth his word, which is how we have the book of Isaiah. This chapter is referring to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who had fulfilled this, uh, who had fulfilled this prophecy that was written, looking back at him, 
uh, nearly 800 years before he walked the earth. But Jesus Christ fulfilled these prophecies. He did this for the glory of God, as we saw at the end of chapter 52. And he did this so you and I could be reconciled with God and have eternal life through faith alone and none else. So if you have any questions or comments about what we have talked about, email us at information at apologetics.org and be sure to go back and check out our other episodes on this series. Well, we'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door.